0: Several years ago, my uncle on my dad's side uh, did some genealogical research uh, about my family on my dad's side that largely originates from Sweden. And so he did a bunch of research, a lot of digging, and then he emailed out his findings uh, to our family. And a year ago, Laura and I looked at that genealogical record to see if we might find some names that would be suitable for our, our third child, who's a boy. We, our second is Soren, which is a Scandinavian name. Helsing is a Swedish Scandinavian name. So we're looking for something robust and Scandinavian. And so we came across options like Hans Helsing. We thought that that was maybe a little, a little too Swedish, and my sister-in-law said, you could call him Hansi. I said, no thanks, I don't know if that was a good, good fit. Magnus Helsing. Anders Helsing, that actually made the short list. We narrowed it down to two or three, and Anders was actually on there. Well, aside from providing a pool of potential names, I found it very meaningful looking at this record, this written record of names, this lineage that I am, in fact, a part of. It helped me understand. My placement in a larger story, in a longer history. Because oftentimes in our own culture, individualistic as it is, we fail to see the breadth of where we came from. And so it helped me think about the continuity and connection that we all have with our past. It helped me understand my placement in an unfolding story. This morning we come to a passage less. Frequently preached. It is a long list of names, a record of returning exiles, a remnant of God's people, moved, stirred by the Lord, given favor from the emperor Cyrus to leave the Persian Empire and go back to their homeland to reestablish right worship there. And what we see is these returning exiles find their placement in a larger story, a story of restoration. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 2. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Ezra 2 on page 389. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one as a gift. In the lobby where the bookshelves are, there are black hardback cover Bibles. You can take one if you have a friend who needs a Bible please feel free to grab one for your friend as well. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Ezra that will go throughout the fall, and the title of that series is Return from Exile. And so I'm going to read chapter 2, this record of restoration. Now these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Ba'ana. The number of the men, the people of Israel, the sons of Perash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonakam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Atar, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gebar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Azmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Kephira and Bararoth, 743, the sons of Ramah and Giba, 621, the men of Mikmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the sons of Nebo, 52, the sons of Magbish, 156, the sons of other Elam, 1254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Senna, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah, the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, the sons of Hodviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atar, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Zihai, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sihai, the sons of Paron, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nafishim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakabah, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahira, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Timah, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatipha. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaalel, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokareth, Hazabiam, the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel-Mela, Tel-Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Imur. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652, Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Marzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. As they had 200 male and female singers, their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest's garments. Now the priests, the Levites, and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Now I understand that your heart was probably not riveted as I read this passage, And my voice barely made it. And so the question that we have to ask is, why is this record in the scripture? If we believe that all of the Bible is inspired, then all of the Bible and the words are there for a reason. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why did the author of Ezra see fit to share with us 70 verses that if you're honest and I'm honest, we skip over in our annual Bible reading? Why is it here? Does it have any bearing on our lives? Is it relevant? And I wanna submit to you that yes, it is relevant. There's a purpose for this rich record. These records, lists of names and families, numbers, genealogies are important literary tools that help God's people have continuity to the past. Like the genealogy that I looked at months ago, help us see our place in an unfolding and larger story. Genealogies, lists of names, they tell a story and in the Bible it's a sweeping story of redemption that God is working. He's passing promises from person to person. These are pipelines of promises, kept. That's the importance of genealogies, and you see them everywhere in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ruth, First Chronicles, Matthew, and Luke. Genealogies abound in the scriptures. Don't skip them. Read them as best you can. You will fumble over the names, but ask the important question, why? Why has the author of this given book placed this record, this list, this genealogy at this point in the book? They're purposeful. And allow me to read a helpful quote by a former Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann writes, these lists of names and genealogies in the Old Testament are a guarantee." That Israel is not adrift in a vacuum of this present generation, but has security and credentials. And as long as Israel can name names and utter their precious sounds, it has a belonging, a place for them, which no hostile empire can deny. These historical records provide evidence of post exilic Israel's continuity with pre exilic Israel. It provides reassurance to the returning exiles that they are the continuation of God's redemptive plan. That God had not forsaken them. Genealogies are pipelines that carry God's promises throughout the history. And so as much as we want to skip them, the ancient reader would cherish these precious names. Why? Because it pointed to their past and the God of their ancestors who was their God, and though they were in a difficult situation for the past 47 years in exile in Babylon, they could say, no, I'm a part of a history, I'm a part of a people, remnant of a a people that God has promised to, to work, to redeem, to restore. So this list of names in Ezra 2 is a record of God's restoration. Each name is there for a reason, real people with real stories who God extended grace to, graciously returned them to their homeland. Ezra too is a record of God's restoration. Now, what I want to do is reveal to you four priorities in the list. Because as you go throughout, you'll see some some differences, some some disruptions in the pattern, which is a way that the author's highlighting or drawing our attention to. Four priorities... The priority of history, the priority of worship, the priority of obedience, and the priority of generosity. Four priorities, history, worship, obedience, and generosity. First, the priority of history. What we see in verse 1 and following is the right response to the decree of Cyrus that Dylan and I have been preaching on the last two Sundays, 539 B.C., A new empire is in charge. The Medo-Persian Empire overtook the Babylonians sometime around 539, 540 B.C. And soon after that empire, under the emperor Cyrus, comes into power, he gives a decree. He releases Israel, a conquered people, by Babylon. He releases them to go home. And he supplies them with resources to go and build and reestablish the right worship in their homeland. And this is the right response. These are the returnees. These are the ones who go. So we see in verse 1, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And thereafter, name after name, family head or clan after clan, we see who returned this record provided organizational structure who went what their role was and it also provided them hope hope that they were connected to their past and their God is not just the God of the past he's the God of the present he's the God of the future so if they're connected to the God of the past they have hope today presently and hope for the future and so do we friends so do we our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God of the past, present, and future. If you align yourself with him by faith, you have a hope and a future, and you have hope for the present as well. So this would have provided structure and organization, who left, what their role was, and then hope, hope for everybody reading this book of Ezra. They would have been encouraged by this record. It's no dry, dusty list that's life-giving and encouraging. Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 35 is the return of the Israelite laity. What do I mean by that? Laity comes from the words laos, which is just people, common people. So the first 35 verses, those are just regular people who returned from exile. After 35, you see the temple workers, the priests, the Levites. Sons of Solomon. These are all temple workers. But here's just the regular lay people, not necessarily temple workers. And those lay people are organized by family clan or head. So, for example, verses 3 and 4, the sons of Parash, that's a family head, a family clan leader. The sons of Shephatiah, again, a, a family head, a leader. And then when you get to 21 through 35, they're organized by their hometown, where their ancestors, ancestors actually lived. So, for example, verse 21, the sons of Bethlehem. Well, that's not a guy's name. That's where people lived. So you see this first 35 verses. People are returning according to family head or, or clan, and some were designated where they, their ancestors lived, Bethlehem, Ai, and so forth. The point is, this is history. It's real people with real stories who sought to worship a real God. Friends, the Bible is historical. Real people who had real encounters with a real God. Take that home with you as you read the scripture. It is historical. It's not fiction. It's it's not fabricated. The Bible is historical, and the genealogies help us. The lists of people help us see the historicity of the scripture. These lists also help us remember. Oh, remembering is critical for the spiritual life. It's critical for you, for me, if you're a Christian. Remembering the past faithfulness of the Lord is critical. Because what happens when you forget the past faithfulness of the Lord? You're prone to despair, to live in the doldrums of discouragement. Remembering is key. How has God been faithful in the past? How has he been true to his promises? And how do we see those promises being fulfilled throughout the decades, the centuries? So these lists, they help us remember history, God's faithful work across history. Consider with me a few applications as we think about people's history. Let's think about our own contemporary situation your own roots, your own spiritual heritage. How might you be encouraged by spending a few minutes today or this week thinking about your own spiritual heritage? Who might be a matriarch or a patriarch in your family history that shaped the course of the family by God's grace? Do you have somebody, like not all of us do, but some of us may, if you're a believer here, think back, a generation or two generations or maybe three generations, who is a matriarch or a patriarch of the faith that shaped you, who you are today? Many of you have heard me speak about my grandfather. We called him Pap on my dad's side, Pap Helsing, a wonderful Swedish man who loved Jesus, who was kind and just sweet, a tender man, a hardworking man who loved his family, who knew how to pray to the Lord who sought to teach Sunday school for 45 years in his local church. He wasn't a pastor. He's just a faithful Christian. And I'll often think in the midst of my own difficulty or thorny situations, what would Pap Helsing do? How would he process and think through this this situation in in my family or in my workplace? He's He's a pillar of faith. Do you have one of those in your family? Friend, If you're here today and you are a Christian, do you realize you are such because of a lineage, a lineage of disciple-making where Jesus impacted someone's life, who impacted another person's life, who impacted another person's life, and on goes this chain link of disciple-making. You're not a disciple on an island, ever. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because someone impacted your life, someone impacted their life, and on goes down. To the 12 apostles who were surrounded Jesus. That's the nature of Christian sp- Christianity spreading. So who is it? Who's touched your life? Who's impacted you in your spiritual heritage? An equally important question is who are you impacting? Who are you linking up with in the chain of disciple making? That down the line we'll look back and say hmm Nadine impacted my life. John impacted my life. As they think about their own spiritual heritage 30, 40 years from now, who do they look back to and see as a link in their chain being a disciple? Now, perhaps you're here today and you come from a long line of non-Christians. And that is the case for some of us. Let me encourage you. What would it look like? What would it look like? By God's grace for you to become the patriarch or the matriarch thereafter so that you, by your faith in Christ and a transformed life, 60 years from now, your grandson or your great-granddaughter would look back and say, it was him, it was her who charted a different course in our family and has served as a matriarch or a patriarch, as did my Pap Helsing. Might it be that you might be that person in your own spiritual history and heritage? Christianity is a historical faith where God shapes one life after another, impacts one life into another. He continues to unfold his redemptive plan over time, and we have the privilege of joining in it. He doesn't need us, but he delights to use us. It's a gift, it's a grace to us that he would use us. Might we be faithful a faithful link in that chain, those spiritual heritages pouring into the next, teaching the next generation. Here you hear the rumbling of kids. Whether you're a parent or not, if you're in this congregation, you have a responsibility to both model and teach for the next generation what it looks like to follow Jesus. If I could take that seriously, take it seriously. If you're a single, take it seriously. My daughter needs to see single women following Jesus in this congregation. Your sons need to see both married men and unmarried men following the Lord Jesus. They got to see that. That's how we teach the next generation. May we invest well. Christianity is a historical faith. It unfolds over time and through generations. Be a faithful part of it. The priority of history. Number two, the priority of worship. As this record of return exiles continues in Ezra 2, we transition to a focus on roles, specific roles, priests, Levites, temple servants, sons of Solomon. Many of these roles speak to the priority of worship among God's people. These were temple staff, temple workers, integral part of the worship of God's people. We see a list of priests beginning in verse 36. So priests were set apart for worship at the altar, interceding and acting as representatives before God and as spokespeople to the people from God. We see a list of Levites beginning in verse 40. These were temple attendants. Some were singers, some were gatekeepers, some were teachers. They were a utility role. Levites. We see a list of temple servants beginning in verse 43. The role of these temple servants was originally instituted by King David. Had a great division of labor in the temple so that each person had a job so that worship could be sustained. And then we see a list of the sons of Solomon's servants in verse 55. We're not entirely sure what this is, but it's likely that these are laborers who work to construct the new temple. Just as in 1 Kings chapter 9, Solomon commissioned many laborers to construct the first temple that was destroyed in 586 B.C. So all of this taken together, priests, Levites, temple servants, Solomon servants, all of these roles were carried out in the temple. Why are we so clear in this passage that they're going? Why why is the author of Ezra being so clear that these folks are going? Because in order to reestablish right worship in Israel, you got to have people to serve and to staff the temple, to lead, to build. To administer, to sustain its worship for the benefit of the whole. This focus on temple roles in the record of returned exile highlights the precious priority of worship among God's people. Worship was central to the life of God's people. Their lives revolved around the worship of the Holy God, the Holy One of Israel, who they drew near through temple sacrifices, through the priests. They could be forgiven temporarily by those slain lambs and bulls and goats. We know that they would point forward to an ultimate sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice. But in the moment, in that temple, it provided a means of forgiveness and restoration for the moment. They could pray. They could intercede. They could seek God. Worship was central to all that they did. As we think about the priority of worship in this list of names, It holds out a truth relevant to all of us. Friends, all of us are worshipers by nature. God created you and me to worship. And we know Genesis 3 onward distorted that worship such that we are prone to give our affections to lesser things, to worship things that are sub-God. And it leaves us ruined as a result. But as we consider this passage, we see God is a God who restores his people's worship. He puts people in place to reestablish right worship, to reclaim worship among a generation and thereafter. God is in the business of restoring the worship of his people. And so can I encourage you today? Where do you find yourself? Take Worship inventory. What are you giving your affections to? What are you in love with in this life? Is it satisfying you? Is it worth your worship? There is only one worth your worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the only one who can satisfy the deep longing of your soul. Worship Him alone. And know that today, if you're worshiping other things, you have an opportunity to be redirected, reoriented into the right way, to the right worship of the living God. How does that happen? How is your worship reestablished and redirected? Not by you going anywhere, but by God coming to you. God coming to you in the person and in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, Lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose victorious from the grave. How is our worship reclaimed, reestablished? By putting your eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who restores us and welcomes us to worship him. The priority of history, the priority of worship, thirdly, the priority of obedience. There's an uncomfortable section in this record in verses 61 and 62. Let's, let's reread 61 and 62. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Now, does this seem unnecessary and harsh? There are some priests, alleged priests, who thought that they were legit, legitimate priests, but as they did the, dig, the digging in the family history, and the genealogy, they weren't found there. So evidently there was some kind of mistake in, in the, the history of that given clan or family division, where someone stepped into a role that they weren't legitimately able to do. And so we see here that they weren't allowed to serve in that role. Why such strict requirements? Again, why? Friends, it's a matter of obedience to the good commands of God. Number 16, verse 40. No one who is not a descendant of Aaron should draw near to serve as priest, to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company. So you just kind of rewind in Numbers chapter 6. I won't go into all the detail, but there was this rebellion among a person who tried to be a priest. He's like, hey, Moses and Aaron, why are you the only priests? We should be able to do that stuff too. Oh no. Life runs best when we are in keeping with God's commands. Life is ruined when we try to be the the directors of our lives and reign ourselves and authority unto ourselves. That's what happened to Korah. You don't do things that God says not to. Obey God, it's a matter of life and death. What got Israel exiled in the first place? What got them into this predicament? centuries upon centuries of disobedience. And so when you see this, it's not harsh. It's just a corrective. Obey the Lord, and life generally goes well. Disobey the Lord, and it's disastrous. There's a blessing in obeying God and trusting his good commands. Every command of the Lord is for our good. It's for our good. It's for our well-being. Though we don't always understand it, it's for our good. He is our creator. We are accountable to him. He knows best how we operate. Trust in him. Obey him. The priority of obedience. Now, obedience can be a challenging thing when, when, we, when we talk about it disconnected from the source and the power for obedience. How do you and I, as Christians, obey? We obey because we are empowered to obey not picking ourselves up from our own bootstraps, not muscling obedience. Now we have a role, we, we, we're called to abide in Jesus, to, to, to remain in him, to be active dependence upon him. So we have a role, but, but, but God initiates it and empowers it forward. To truly obey God, you have to be given a new heart. This is what is forecasted in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How do we obey God? God empowers us by his spirit He gives us a new heart and moves us to obey as we rely and trust in him. Your power for for obedience as a Christian is derived from Jesus Christ, resting in him, relying upon him, staying rooted in him. The priority of history, the priority of worship, the priority of obedience, fourthly and finally, the priority of generosity. The priority of generosity. Notice what takes place in verses 68 and 69. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is its remains, because when they went back, it was decimated. When they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, they made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. What do we see here? People freely, generously giving to the work of temple restoration. It required precious metals and stones and jewels for the temple to be constructed as God designed it. And many of those resources came from the people themselves, willingly, generously, giving, notice, according to their ability. People gave of their resources according to what they had. It's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians 16, at the first of the week, set aside a portion of your gain. 2 Corinthians 8:3, for they gave according to their means. We're called to give according to what we have not according to what we don't have. We're called to give in accordance to what we have, according to our ability. That's what we're held accountable to. And so they're they're freely giving. No one's coercing them. They're giving to the work of the the temple, to the reestablishing of worship there. Friends, we mentioned this last week. It is a good thing. It's a good thing to give to the restorative work of the Lord it's meaningful, it's joy-giving, it's fulfilling to open your hands and give to the Lord. It's an act of worship, in fact, because as we give, we say, these things are not my gods, you are my God, and I entrust these into your hands that you might multiply for your sake, for your kingdom. I just want to share a little encouragement with you this morning. If you're a member of this church, you know this. Uh, If you're not a member We would encourage you to be a member. We have been praying really for the last year and a half, but but corporately as a church since about March, May, that the Lord might give us an opportunity to to buy the building that our kids' space is in, just right behind this theater. There's a three-family house, and behind that, there's a two-story office building. and the Lord in His grace, I mean, has, has given us such favor with uh, the building owner. Uh, his name is Dennis. Um, just a, a, not a Christian, but he drives with his white pickup sometimes and he says, You know, Dan, I see people smiling coming out of your church. There's something good going on in there. I said, Dennis, there is. You should check it out. And, you know, so you just have the opportunity to be light to people. And so we approached him in March and asked him, would you consider allowing us to to buy this? And Dennis said, absolutely, I'd love to talk to you. And we sat down at Dunkin' Donuts two weeks later, right here. And he shared his story with me. I asked him what what his spiritual background was, and we ended up talking nuts and bolts as well of what it would cost. And we agreed on a, a fair price. We voted as members. But then as we were crunching the numbers, you know, we have some savings, but we couldn't make it all of ourselves. And so we've asked people to prayerfully consider contributing to, to, this, to this work, to, to, the, to, to a ministry center for kids and adults. It's a great place for small groups, potentially housing mission teams for short-term trips as well. It'd be a wonderful thing that would allow us to multiply ministry in this area. We needed to raise you know, some $50,000. And over the last three or four weeks, for, through the generosity of your own hearts and some external partners, you know, by God's grace, we've, we've We've been able to get there, and I just want to share that with you, because no one coerced you to give. I'm talking about giving, but I'm giving an update of your willing, generous, sacrificial gifts that make ministry happen in this area. And what a privilege it is to be a part of it. I just want to thank you, and and praise God for you. Uh, tomorrow at 10 a.m., we'll, Lord willing, you can pray for this. We'll be closing on that property, so. Please, as you think about tomorrow morning around 9 or 10 a.m., Lord willing, it'll be it'll be closed and we'll be able to to get in there and decorate it and use both floors of that place. So the Lord be glorified through our kids and through adults, through mission teams. So thank you. It's a picture of what we see here in verses 68 and 69. People gave willingly, freely, according to their ability. You have given freely, willingly, according to your ability. What a, what a blessing, what a privilege. Our giving, friends, is a derived giving. We give because God has first given to us. And this morning, as we close our time in the word, we have an opportunity to remember God's lavish giving to us in Christ. He sent his beloved son, Jesus, to die in our place. Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins and made right in relationship with him. So in a few moments, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or thankful that you're here, I would encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, but consider what the bread and the cup represent. It's Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you. That's the length of God's love for you, that you might come to trust in him. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you are a Christian, we'd welcome you to partake of the bread and the cup. If you haven't picked up Your bread and cup, there's some in the the lobby there. Feel free to to grab those. I'm going to pray. You can go out and get the bread and the cup, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. God, for your provision, for your faithfulness to us. Lord, your desire to come into our broken existence and reorder, reestablish right worship in our lives. Lord, we confess that we are prone to worship lesser things, and we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who pursues us, reclaims us, reestablishes the right worship in us. Thank you that you are God of history, moving, working across the generations, and inviting us to be a part of that generational work and to invest in the next generation. We pray that we do that faithfully. God, thank you for just your provision. I specifically pray this morning that you would order our steps tomorrow morning, that we would be able to indeed close on the the property um, that we've been renting for the last four years. Lord, we dedicate that to you. We pray that you would be pleased and honored, that young people would be discipled, that adults would learn of Jesus there, that mission teams would be housed and, and find rest and respite after a hard day's work there, and that you would just multiply our efforts here in this community through that physical resource. We know that it is not the church. It's simply a tool. Help us to use all our gifts and our tools well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.